0: Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com.
1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. thank you for listening. Fueled by the pandemic and our racial reckoning since 2020, the local arts collective Next Atlanta and MARTA Artbound joined forces to launch the Next Movement, a multi-platform arts and social action campaign. Later this hour, we'll listen back to a conversation about the Art in Transit project, featuring five of Atlanta's most influential artists of color. First... Since 1976, Rick Steves has been encouraging people to broaden their perspectives through travel. The popular public television host, best-selling guidebook author, and activist is widely considered America's leading authority on European travel. You may feel like you know him from watching his series Rick Steves' Europe for many years on our television station. He joins me now via Zoom to talk about travel to Europe in 2023. Rick Steves, welcome back to City Lights.
2: Lois, I always enjoy talking with
1: you and your listeners about travel. The last time we spoke, we talked a bit about your book, Travel as a political act. Would you please reiterate how travel influences our beliefs?
2: Well, you know, if you don't travel, it's easy for other people to shape your worldview through mostly commercial media and social media and so on. And when you do travel, you actually meet it face to face and you get to know the other 96% of humanity that lives outside of our borders. And uh, I just think that you can travel as a way to just have fun and recreate, and that's fine. But you can also travel thoughtfully and have a transformational experience, and it allows you to comfortable with the rest of the world to get friendly with the rest of the world to realize the world is filled with with joy and with love and with beautiful people of course there's some some bad apples and some some tough spots but in general we're all in this together and the more we know each other the better and my idea is if people can come home with the most beautiful souvenir that would be a broader perspective Hmm. Um, you know there's a lot of fear in our society And I think the flip side of fear is understanding and you gain understanding when you travel. So, so basically fear is for people who don't get out very much. Uh, And, you know, very fundamentally, I think people are afraid because they want to be safe. And I think a traveler knows that the best way to be safe is not to build walls, but to build bridges and to have relationships and to connect with people who may be different than us. Uh, You know, we're afraid of things that are different and when you get out there and you you, you try a, some food that's different, uh, maybe you're not so afraid of it. And if you meet some people who are different, maybe you realize, okay, we're all in this together, we can compare notes, and we have to share this planet. So I just love traveling. I just love the importance of travel. I work with 100 people here in Seattle, and our mission is to equip and inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando.
1: <laughs> I have to tell you that watching your series over the years I'm continually impressed by how delighted you are, Rick, the wide-eyed wonder that you exhibit in the places you visit, when I know you've been there repeated times, and yet you just light up. How do you keep that?
2: I don't know for sure, but it's true. I've been there to these places a lot, but I still have a wide-eyed wonder about them. And... uh, I'm not sure why, but I just I'm endlessly entertained by learning about things, and being steep on the learning curve is one of my goals when I travel. You can never go to the same place twice in your travels because you're going to meet different people. The mark of a good trip is how many people do you meet, how many new things do you try, how many uh, other ways to to see things do you bring home with you. And I, I'm thankful that I just I have a, a focus. You know, I love to travel all over the world. My favorite countries are India and Southeast places in Southeast Asia. My son lives in South America and Colombia. I love to go there. But as a teacher, I really want to help Americans just take that first step. And for me, the first step to becoming friends with the world from the United States is going to Europe. Europe for me is the wading pool for world exploration and a springboard for traveling beyond that. Mm. And if I can just um, focus on Europe, I spend 100 days a year in Europe and help people sort through all the superlatives, cut through the superlatives basically, and recognize we Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. Our time is a precious resource. We have to use our time smartly. Of course, we got to spend our money smartly, and I believe that uh, you need to focus on having experiences rather than just a bucket list of things to check off. I'm privileged and just filled with joy that I get to teach people about Europe, to introduce people to Europe. And um, when I learn about a new little place in the Alps or a new little place in the Greek Isles or a new little adventure in Turkey, I realize that thousands of people are going to benefit from that because I can share it. And for me, that that gives my work meaning and it gives me energy. And um, my friends are starting to retire now at my age, but I, I can't imagine not doing this anymore. I just love it. So I'm I'm pretty lucky guy to have found my niche. I'm curious
1: how you get those tips. Do you have scouts or do people who have visited various places feel comfortable enough emailing or or writing you to let you know?
2: Well, some people feel comfortable not sharing their tips because they don't want me to put it in my book because then it'll be more touristed, you know, <laughs> so I can understand that. It's my private little cafe in Paris. But um, my job is, I'm a hired hand of my readers, basically, and my viewers. My job is to go over there and make all sorts of mistakes uh, and learn from those mistakes. Take careful notes. When I get ripped off, I celebrate because they don't know who they just ripped off. I'm going to learn that scam, bring it home, <laughs> let people know about it. In my, in my sightseeing, Lois, I like to miss as much as I like to hit. I go over there and check out everything that's you know that I can. Things that are trendy, people that tell me about, uh, places I've heard about. And, um, you know, I hit and I miss and I miss and I hit and miss and miss and miss and miss and hit and hit and miss and hit. And 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 then I bring home the hits. And I I don't want to talk about negative things. I, I want to talk about positive things. These are the places I loved when I was in Croatia. And then I write those up. And, you know, everybody's got their own style of travel, and I encourage people to find the travel writer or the guidebook that fits their style of travel. But for people that like my style of travel, which is close to the ground and informal and and having new experiences, for people who like my style and my philosophy of travel, a good thing about how prolific I've been over 40 years with 100 um, colleagues to help me in my work is that our approach to travel in Norway and Greece and Portugal and Ireland is consistent. So if you liked my book to Ireland, you'll probably like my book to Portugal. If you didn't like my coverage of London, I doubt if you like my coverage of Paris. <laughs> it's all pretty consistent. And for the right traveler, it seems to work. Mm.
1: I admire how you have tried to mitigate the environmental impact of your tour programs. Would you talk about what you've done to try to combat climate change?
2: Yeah, mitigate is the good word that you used there, Lois. Um, I don't want to be shamed out of my flying. Yes, those of us who fly to travel, those of us who travel contribute to climate change. And when we fly, we contribute, you know, substantially to climate change uh, collectively. And it's only ethical to pay our way from a carbon point of view. And, um, you know, you could stop flying. But I think flying and traveling is important for world peace. We need to understand each other. I think that the challenges that confront us in the future will be blind to borders, and you'll have, we'll have to be grappling with these challenges with nations working together. And it's just very constructive to get out there and get to know the other 96% of humanity. Having said that, when we travel, we do contribute to climate change. But scientists have, have explained very clearly to me that if you smartly invest thirty dollars in fighting climate change, in in mitigating the carbon, you create as much good as you create bad by flying all the way to Europe and back, and you you zero out your contribution to climate change from that flight. So I just think it's fundamentally ethical for us to pay $30 to fight climate change if we're gonna fly to Europe and back, and then we become carbon neutral in our flight. So what I've done in my business as a model for other tour organizers is to create what I call the Rick Steves Climate Smart Initiative. And we take 25,000 people to Europe in a normal year. And 30 times 25,000 is, what, $750,000. I round it up to a million dollars. And then I find organizations in the developing world that are helping farmers do their work while contributing less to climate change. Because a huge contributor to climate change, along with us in the rich world and all of us who travel, are developing world farmers, small family farms, smallholder farmers, half of humanity, I understand, is you know smallholder farmers that are trying to live on $5 a day. They are working very hard just to feed their families, and they contribute a lot to climate change with their agricultural practices, and they can learn to do a better job, produce more, and contribute less to climate change. So we have 10 organizations in our portfolio that we support with a gift of $100,000 a year to do their work in the developing world while contributing less to climate change. And that clearly mitigates the carbon we create by going to Europe and back. So people who take a Rick Steves tour, take a Rick Steves tour knowing that including in the price is this investment in developing world farmers that enables us to mitigate the carbon we create by flying to Europe. Nothing to brag about, nothing heroic. It's just baseline ethical for us to pay our carbon costs if we're going to be traveling. I wish it was a tax, but it's not. This is a self-imposed tax on my company, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm very excited about it. And um, the top line on my website at ricksteves.com in the climate change section says, if you're a tour organizer, please steal this program and don't credit me. It's high time those of us who are leaders in the tourism industry uh, take the initiative and pay for our carbon.
3: Hmm.
1: Very admirable. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with the beloved travel expert, Rick Steves. Would you tell us about your travels to Italy as 2022 came to a close.
2: Yes, I had a great experience in December traveling in Italy. I went there um, to teach tour guides. You know, with COVID, you can imagine it, it causes a challenge for a lot of businesses to staff properly. I mean, imagine airlines staffing their, their flights, and if, if pilots are getting COVID, it scrambles up everything. Well, on a smaller scale, we have the same challenges with our guides in Europe. In a busy week, we have 100 buses on the road at the same time. That's a lot of tour guides. And if any of them get sick, we have to have tour guides standing by and so on. And um, I just want to train some new guides. So there's a lot of guides that want to work with us, uh, but they're and they're professional guides. They need to learn how to do the Rick Steves style of travel, and I want them to drink the Rick Steves Kool-Aid, and I want to serve <laughs> it to them direct. So I go to Europe with them, and we have a tour a mentoring tour where I get to be the tour guide and they get to be the tour members. And we spend a week together and we just did that with two groups in December. And I am so, it was so exciting to have 40 new Rick Steves tour guides that I could teach and we just all brainstormed on ways we can make the history meaningful and fun, how we can uh, fill our days with experiences, how we can keep people safer and healthier, how we can run a tight ship on the bus, how we can communicate with our drivers better, the sort of rudiments of doing a good tour and there's a lot to it and i just enjoyed the chance to be a, a tour guide again with a bunch of tour guides so that was our goal in december we had a great time it reminded me that if you're afraid of the heat and the crowds of summer which is reasonable you can just bundle up and go off season and have a wonderful time
1: indeed when was the last time you led a tour of hero? um you know for 30 years,
2: I led tours a lot. Uh, And there was a period where um, half of my time in Europe was leading tours around. For the last 15 years, I've been taking my tours instead of leading them. It's really fun for me. But um, every couple of years, I actually lead a tour. And uh, it's just so much fun to get back in the saddle. The way we promote the tours, it kind of shapes our clientele. Uh, Last year, we took 25,000 people on a thousand different tours, 40 different itineraries. None of them were allowed to check anything on the airplane when we started. Nine by 22 by 14 inches. That's how big of a bag you can carry onto the airplane. And that is our limit for our tours to start with. You can fly home with whatever you want. But that we do that, and we have a policy where you carry your own bags to the room. And, um, you know, people know that we're not a shopping tour. Uh, people know that we stay in characteristic local-style hotels so we could be right downtown. You know, this is demanding travel and for a lot of people that's not their idea of a vacation but for other people it's just right it's exactly what they're looking for and people are hungry for candor and that's something that we really really strive to do is be very transparent and very straightforward with people and for the right person the tour is great and for the wrong person there are other tour companies that have a program that'll fit their travel dreams better but I just love being a tour guide, there's joys of being a tour guide. You, you know, people have waited all their lives to get to St. Peter's Basilica, and you step into the narthex and then into the actual cathedral or the basilica. You're stepping into the biggest church in Christendom. You gaze up at Michelangelo's dome, taller than a football field on end, and you realize that 500 years ago, this building was the very best they could do to to glorify God. And it's just, you know, you got the sunbeams coming in, and you can smell the incense, And you've got pilgrim groups coming in from all over the catholic world and to be there as a visitor is just really exciting and to watch people's faces when they step into that space that's the real joy for me there's a lot of experiences like that you know you walk through the narrow lanes of venice and you finally get to uh, the uh, Piazza San Marco, mm. uh, right there in the main square, where the Doge's Palace is and in the, in the Basilica of Saint Mark's. And you see the faces of people. It's just they just they're almost tearfully overwhelmed by the beauty uh, and all of the anticipation. And and you're right there, and you get to orchestrate that to cross the border into France. And you got 25 people on your bus, and you order 25 actually you order 24 cuz they come in dozens you order 24 escargot everybody gets one <laughs> <laughs> and and you got to have an escargot one you don't have to like it but you got to try an escargot in france and uh, most people sh- shrivel up their noses and they 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 scrunch and they kind of they they're not sure about it they try it and probably half of the people don't like it. They had one, they're not going to have any more. And half of the people, they're going to actually order half a dozen escargot tomorrow when they're on their own for
1: dinner. <laughs> mm. Hearing you talk about St. Peter's and San Marco, it does seem that Italy is your favorite country in Europe, Rick. Is that fair to presume?
2: Well, I'm thankful that I like almost wherever I go. You could plop me down in Tallinn in Estonia tomorrow, and I would just be thrilled as could be. You could just take me on a, on a hike on the Douro Valley with all the, the vineyards creating the port wine, and I'd be as happy as could be. You know, you could take me to the Greek islands, and I would be sipping my glass of ouzo and watching the sunset uh, with total joy. But if I had to say my favorite country, it would be Italy. You could sort of derive that from where have I made TV shows. Yes. We've made a hundred and we've probably made 130 or 140 episodes of my Rick Steves Europe show that you guys air in, in Atlanta there. And, uh, you know, I've got two shows on Norway. That's an hour about Norway. I've got four shows on uh, Ireland. That's two hours on Ireland. I've got eight shows on Spain. Four hours of Spanish coverage, and I've got 18 shows on Italy. Mm -hmm. There's just so much in Italy. I think I know more people in Italy because of the Italian uh, love of just getting to know people and the whole piazza culture I love. I love Italian cuisine. I love the bella, they call it the the bella chaos, the beautiful chaos, not just the chaos, but the bella chaos. And if you don't like bella chaos, there's other countries, you know, some people, they go to Italy and, and they say, oh, there's so many so many traffic jams. Everybody's fighting and there's jostling and lines and there's body odor and stray hairs. Uh, Somebody tried to rip me off yesterday and I just think, well, you should probably go to Denmark. You would love Denmark. But I just love Italy as a package. Uh, My mark of a good traveler is who likes Italy. I I remind people, Italy intensifies as you go farther south. If you like Italy as far south as Rome, go further south. It gets better if Italy's getting on your nerves by the time you get to Rome, don't go farther south. It just gets more intense. I have to, just a couple of days ago, I was thinking about where am I going to travel later in 2023? And I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta stop myself from going back to Italy again. My staff tells me that for 2023, the hot destinations are the, the more the fringe countries, Scotland, Mm. Ireland, Portugal, and Greece. And understandably so. I mean, Scotland is uh, just so charming, and uh, Ireland is just the friendliest place in Europe. In Ireland, I get the sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language, which I think makes it really fun for a person like me who only speaks English. Um, Ireland, people love to talk, and they've got that wonderful gift of gab and that wonderful lilt. For me, Ireland is like uh, Italy with rain. Um, <laughs> what a great then, <laughs> description. Yeah, well, you know, it's coming. it comes to people, doesn't it? I mean, the people in Scotland are, are so um enthusiastic about welcoming us uh, maybe part of the the um, clarity of their enthusiasm is it's in english so you can understand them
1: now there will be 22 consecutive nights of free virtual travel events across europe would you tell us about Rick oh. Steves tours festival
2: yeah, thank you, Lois. As in fact, as soon as we're saying goodbye t- today, I'm going to go back into my preparation because I'm going to be hosting twenty two nights in a row of uh, celebrations about Europe. And uh, every night until January thirtieth, at nine o'clock in the evening, uh, we have a free travel festival. And um, each night I'll be joined by a European guide, and um, you know, one night it'll be Portugal, the next night Scotland, the next night uh, uh, the Adriatic, the next night Sicily, the next night Turkey, the next night France, and all across for 20 nights in a row. And I'll be, um, uh, you know, showing slides and showing little video clips and sharing all the latest with my partner who's calling in from Europe on a webinar. And um, the idea is to sell the enthusiasm for that country and remind people there's many ways to visit that country and here's all the latest on Spain or Scandinavia or Switzerland or you name it. Uh, People can look at the schedule. They can sign up for whatever they like. Again, it's totally free and uh, we've got thousands of people joining us each night and we'd love to have any of uh, those listening right now and they can simply go to my website. It's myname.com and uh, right there on the homepage you'll see how to sign up and I'm going to, with the help of my friends in Europe, personally get right up to date on every corner of Europe over those three weeks, the last three weeks in this month.
1: <laughs> now, would you talk about your Europe through the gutter roots of Rick Steve's Europe?
2: Oh, my Europe through the gutter roots. Yeah, well, for years, my company was called Europe Through the Back Door. My first book was called Europe Through the Back Door, and is how to travel. I wrote it. I self-published it in 1980. Um, and I've updated that book every year for Ever since, boy, that's a lot of years. And um, I joke that we, you know, in the very beginning, it wasn't uh, Europe through the back doors; Europe through the gutter, uh, just because we were just slumming around Europe as backpackers. And uh, I've still got a lot of that heritage in my teaching. In so many ways, I think the less you spend, the more you experience. And uh, I just love sitting in a park with a picnic, and I just uh, love, um, you know, going into a uh, a local diner or a cafeteria or some just place where real people are to me i want to be a cultural chameleon uh you know i don't i don't drink i don't work all day in seattle and go home and crave a nice cloudy glass of ouzo but when i'm in greece and the sun's setting and i'm on a greek isle man i could i really a, a glass of ouzo feels just right I, I mentioned escargot when you cross the border into france when i'm in You know, Turkey, I'll play backgammon. When I'm in France, I play petanque. When I'm in Finland, I I just love to get naked with a bunch of people in a working-class neighborhood in, in Helsinki and go to the sauna, like they do all the time. So I become a temporary local, and that is fundamental to good travel. It's easier to go local when you're not spending a lot of money. When you spend a lot of money... Counterintuitively, you, you end up building a bigger wall. You build between you and what you traveled so far to experience. And you just attract people that want more of your money. And I find that, um, you know, if you travel the right way, you're part of the party instead of part of the economy. And um, that's kind of fundamental to how we like to go. I was just in uh, Cuba a couple of years ago for New Year's Eve. I was thinking about that this New Year's. And it, we were running around with my family looking for something to do, kind of ad lib on New Year's Eve. And we went into this hotel, and it was filled with local elites spending a bloody fortune for one night's party on the rooftop with the pool and a band and party favors and their fancy American drinks in Havana. And I just thought, look at these people. None of them are really even happy, and they've just spent two months of the local income to have a party up here because they're they're so privileged and uh, wealthy. And I said, let's just wander through a neighborhood and we'll meet a family. So we did that. We left the hotel. We wandered through a neighborhood. We found a family that was just their whole party was was music, three generations dancing and one bottle of rum. That was it. What do you want to drink? <laughs> All there is is rum, you know, and uh rum and coke. And it was uh it was the best New Year's Eve I think we've ever had. We had so much fun with that family, not because we were spending more, but because we were meeting the people. And spending less—that's
1: fantastic.
2: <laughs> and I'll never forget being taught how to dance. It was like a dream come true. And I wasn't the tour guide; I was the dad. I was with my my kids, and uh, the joy that filled that room, and the welcome, and the love—I uh, I just, for me, it really was emblematic of the of the contrast between front door. And backdoor travel. And uh, what I like is the backdoor travel. And, um, you know, that's just one small example, but you get that all over the place if you let serendipity happen. The problem nowadays is we're so controlled, we're so crowdsourced, we're so risk averse, we're so wealthy uh, that serendipity is shut down. And the people who have the great experiences are not, you don't need to be poverty stricken and and slumming through Europe, but you are letting things that are unplanned knock on your door and you're saying yes. (laughs) And when you say yes to these experiences, rather than go back to your hotel and talk with other Americans and and catch up on your news and your social media and and watch some game on TV, you're out there in the streets. You got to put yourself out where that magic can happen and then you got to say yes when serendipity knocks, and uh, that's one of my resolutions for traveling in the coming year, is when an opportunity presents itself, say yes. Uh. Another resolution is when we leave home, pause and look at our home from a distance and see it from that perspective and think, what can we learn? And uh, another, another of my resolutions is, regardless of how the media paints our world from here, from this hometown perspective, Get away from the impressions our media gives us and meet real people. And then think about the importance of connections. Connections is so fundamental. And uh, when when we travel smartly, we connect.
1: Thank you. Travel expert Rick Steves. More information about his 22 nights of free virtual travel events is on our website wabeorg dot org slash City Lights. And beginning in February, Rick will join City Lights monthly as our esteemed travel contributor. In a moment, we'll hear about the Next Atlantis partnership with Marta, For their Art in Transit project, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
0: Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. Believing it's not just about living longer, it's about living healthier longer. Providing medical diagnostics to help catch deadly or debilitating diseases early. You can learn more on proactive screenings at virtualimagingatl.com.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's Thank you for listening. After years of the pandemic and our reckoning with racial injustice, a new art campaign explores the question, where do we go next? Next Atlanta and MARTA have partnered to launch the Next Movement. The multi-platform arts and social action campaign highlights five Atlanta artists. Artists and their works, which speak directly to this moment in time. Joining me now via Zoom are Faith Carmichael, co founder and director of Next Atlanta, Catherine Durga, director of Art in Transit at MARTA, and the poet and author John Good. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Louis.
5: Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here.
1: Faith, before we talk about the campaign, would you please tell us what inspired you to create Next in 2008? Absolutely, Louis. Would love to. So, Next is really the brainchild
6: of several Atlanta artists who had been going out into the community and just happening to engage with amazing, talented artists across genres, musicians, literary artists, visual artists who were doing incredible work. They were from our own community, so Black and Brown artists, artists of color. And what we noticed is that though they were doing really incredible work, their reach was limited. We realized that we don't always have the same level of access to venues and exposure and arts journalism as maybe our other counterparts and we complained about it as artists wont to do and then at a certain point we just thought well what can we do about it so we started just creating spaces for these amazing artists to come together and share their work and give voice to the amazing talents that they had and then filling that room with other individuals who were similarly talented or had the ability to help them get to their next level. And these are all powerful artists who were sort of at the cusp of getting to that next place. And what we saw was ourselves as a space and a vehicle to help them get there. And so we started calling it next, meaning they were really the next big thing. You had the opportunity to sit in living rooms or in small gallery spaces and see these incredible artists up close before they became
1: stratospheric. And that's how we started. Would it be correct to say that you had the Harlem Renaissance as a role model? Yeah, we were sort of bold and ambitious enough to
6: think of ourselves as living in the tradition of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, a time of great unrest and great challenges for communities of color in the New York area, but that also gave rise to just a beautiful cultural awakening led by and inspired by artists, and we see ourselves as sort of continuing in that tradition right here in Atlanta with these incredible artists who are not just artists, but are socially conscious and active and using their art to bring about change in their communities and whatever we can do at NEXT
1: to create sort of a space for that to occur is what we are committed to. How did the partnership between NEXT and MARTA come about, Catherine?
0: Well, Faith introduced me to Next, and I was really interested in ways that MARTA might be able to partner with Next. We look for community partners. Artbound really positions itself as a connector in the community, a way for MARTA to connect with its patrons and with the communities that we serve, and so this seemed like an ideal partnership to me. Although um, at that time, really, Next was kind of situating itself in, you know, more of a salon kind of um, environment. And so I wasn't sure how our noisy <laughs> train stations could be a salon. And so we we talked in, in some ways, the pandemic shut down, the lockdown worked in our favor a bit, because then we could kind of vision this as a virtual experience.
1: Ah, in New York City. It's not unusual. In fact, it's common to see musical or dance performances, spoken word, while riding the subway. How does Marta's Artbound expand upon that artistic transit experience?
0: Well, we have a roster of about 30 musicians, And they play in our stations along with the MARTA Fresh Markets that are there one day a week in each of the different lines of MARTA. And so we do have live musicians that play in tandem with the markets. I will say that prior to the shutdown, we had musicians playing in, you know, 16 stations a week. And so we have pulled that back, unfortunately, a bit um, just due to safety reasons, safety concerns, and, you know, to reflect that there is, you know, to be frank, a bit less ridership right now. Um, But we do still put on many performances in the stations besides the live music as well. We have a really nice partnership with Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater, and they've done some wonderful things over the year and will continue through the holidays. So we are a very vibrant program. It's called Artbound Live, and it encompasses typically around 160 performances a year. And so we are very active in the stations. This year we've added, we had dance theater, live music, and this year we've added opera and spoken word. So we're out there.
1: Wow. Now, who are the five artists participating in this Arts and Social Action campaign?
6: We were able to partner with... sort of like a dream team of the artists that we've worked with in the past that we just thought were incredible and would really represent the sort of first effort with our first collaboration with MARTA around the next movement. So we're working with the incredible John Good, who you will likely hear from later, who is an author and poet and host of the mock storytelling event, Okori Okechello johnson who's a, a longtime friend of this program, Cece Sunchild, who's an amazing vocalist and uh, pianist and songwriter, Carlos Andres Gomez, who is also a poet and an author, um, spoken word artist and an actor, and Melissa Mitchell, who is a visual artist that's worked closely with Marta in the past. And together, each one of these artists, thanks to Marta, will be commissioned to do a single piece within their genre that
1: speaks to these issues of where we are right now and, and where we need to go next. John, please tell us the name of your poem, and if you can, what you will address within it.
5: Yeah, so the uh, the poem, when I initially wrote it, it was called These Days, and I I don't know, that title might stick, but it's an ever-evolving poem. Actually, I I was editing and rewriting it, uh, I think two days before we did the performance on the train, because as the incredible... Um, Nina Simone said she said it is the duty of the artist to reflect the times and the times just move so quickly and it just seems like there are new new issues to address almost every day and so the piece it it was literally a a a piece that was evolving as the project was evolving so up until two days before the, the the actual performance I was editing and changing and writing that poem. And if I had to do it again today, it would be maybe even different today because so much has happened since.
1: Mm. In July, each of the artists filmed their performances on empty train cars. What inspired that idea? So a couple of things, Lois. I think one,
6: we were inspired by an NPR product actually called the Tiny Desk Series where incredible artists as they're emerging before they become sort of, some of them before they become household names, some of them after they become household names, perform in a particular setting that is sort of democratic and allows us to be able to just plug into their performances in a virtual way. And as Catherine mentioned, we were looking for ways to be able to pivot with the onset of the pandemic to be able to showcase these artists and their amazing talent in a virtual space. And so this virtual concert series sort of bubbled up, sort of built on this idea that we first saw on Tiny Desk. And then we just thought, what if our sound set was a train? What was it, What if it was just part of the exact space and, and energy of the transit system that we were hoping to showcase? And so we sort of merged those two concepts and this idea came up and it Sounded a little insane to me, but I said hello <laughs> to Catherine, and she, always willing for a great adventure, said, yeah, let's do it. And it was really, it was, I think, even more beautiful and more compelling
1: than even if you thought it could be. Catherine, these are decommissioned martyr trains, correct? <laughs>
0: No, actually, uh, you know, the train that was used is one that was in our yard. And so the trains go through a service period after they do their runs. And so this was a train that, you know, was able to be out of service for, I think, 36 hours or something like that. And so, yeah, they were able to do it on the real train. It will look just like a real train that you would ride. And I agree with Faith. I mean, it was just it was almost mysterious, the, the magic of lighting and, um, you know, production. I won't tell all the secrets, but it was very compelling and very beautiful to see art being made in this, in this space. And so I thought it was a good idea, but I was really surprised, I think, by how, how it turned out. It was really beautiful.
1: Very cool. John, how did it feel to perform yeah. on an empty martyr train with no audience?
5: Oh, it was it was a ball. The the cast and the crew they actually served as an audience. So I was very fortunate that when I was done, they were nice enough to give me a, a standing ovation. So oh. it it felt good. But it also felt good because I I've, I've written the Marta forever. You know, I've probably written every line of of the Marta, and I've written so many poems sitting there on the Marta, and I've sat there and kind of. Spoke, you know, mumbled them to myself where people are looking at me like, I don't think that young man is well. <laughs> and so it was good to, it was good to do the poem on the train and have it, you know, so well received when I'm like, wow, I've created so much art on these trains. It's good to, to like kind of come full circle and be able to do this performance on the train as well.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Here, Marta has been inspiration or at least enabled you to have that creative space while you were riding it. and Yes, na- it,
5: it was literally a vehicle to create my heart.
1: Ah, <laughs> words well chosen. <laughs> it happens to be your area. Will the filmed pieces, the artists' videos that were filmed on the train, will those be featured in any of the mart stations
0: we plan to share the the videos that were made on the train via our social media outlets
1: ah okay two and a half years after our country's reckoning with racial injustice and the start of the pandemic how does this project aim to heal and bring greater awareness to these ongoing issues?
5: I think that sometimes when we face like these tough times, these tough issues, the duty of the artist often is to elevate and to illuminate the issue. And that once the issue is um, elevated and illuminated, then we can all come together as a community and we can seek out what the solutions may be. Often the art may offer you solutions. The art always will um, speak to you know what the injustice is. But I think that it's the community uh, as a whole that's where the the solutions actually lay. And so, yeah, the artist speaks to the times, and then the community comes together, and we, you know, try to find and navigate our way forward through these tough times to, you know, some kind of common ground, some place where we can all stand and um, stand there equally, stand there in love, and stand there as a community.
6: Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that. Uh, to the Harlem Renaissance that you referenced earlier, Lewis, or, you know, to any sort of major moment in history where we've faced challenges as a community, it is our artists and our art leaders that have inspired us and healed us and motivated us to keep going and to move on despite. Um, and I think this moment that we're in, which is, you know, an overused word, but is unprecedented, is no different. And I am firmly of the belief that it is our artists that are once again gonna save us and um, share through their expression what often all of us are feeling and experiencing but can't put into words and can't express quite as powerfully as they can. And so I think this campaign is a powerful way to elevate the voices of those artists that have made a living of healing and strengthening and inspiring our communities and giving them space and voice in a space that's so ubiquitous like our transit system. I think that's a powerful way for us to do
1: this. Faith Carmichael, co-founder and director of Next Atlanta, Catherine Durgan, director of Art in Transit at MARTA, and poet and author John Good. That conversation originally aired in August. More information about the unique collaboration is on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. Coming up, our series of visual artists in their own words, speaking of art. Today, featuring multimedia artist Emily Yamazales, amplifying Atlanta... This is 90.1 W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on W.A.B.E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Art, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
3: Hi, my name is Emily Yamasalis, and I am a multimedia artist, primarily working within ceramic sculpture, photography, and writing. My ceramic works rely on transparent glazes to suspend underlying surface decoration in order to evoke a transient moment just below the surface. Metallic glazes, scales, and bubbling surface marks offer a tactile experience with both the sculptural and functional ceramics that I make. I maintain a regular photographic practice in which I often shoot detailed textured terrain for inspiration as a visual sketchbook and for making rudimentary holograms from layered transparent images. Through this latter process, I am exploring a simultaneous collapse of images, building up a holographic 3D space or an almost moving image as a viewer walks past the work. In my new and developing body of work, I am expanding a collection of wing-shaped ceramic wall sculptures, orchid-like vases, mutated plant-like sculptures, and transparent screen prints of textural photographs on fluorescent plexiglass. My art practice certainly goes back to childhood when I had a 3D drawing of an astronaut selected for display in the Atlanta airport one summer. I was eight then, and recently I found one of those Phil and the Blake About Me posters from the fifth grade. I said I wanted to either be an astronaut or an artist when I grew up, and this is still true. I attended the University of Georgia's Lamar Dodd School of Art, and majored in interdisciplinary studio art because I loved photo and video. This degree also allowed me to take any out of the ordinary classes like performance art, sound art, and 3D animation. My writing and creative practice are most influenced by science fiction, ontological philosophy, and speculative thinking towards future world building. My current body of work interrogates contemporary climate-based sci-fi narratives and is in conversation with Swedish poet and critic Berg's epic poem, Dark Matter. In this poem, Berg's prose evokes a post-human world of horrific strangeness and renewal. Additionally, I am deeply dedicated to documenting Arabia Mountain, a granite outcrop in Connors, Georgia, with its moon-like, otherworldly atmosphere when captured on film. A lot of my motivation comes from wanting to create something wholly strange and new, like a set piece for a science fiction film, and to have people glimpse into a portal of wonder. I have lived in and around Atlanta my whole life, and have a deep love for the South and Atlanta's landscape and culture. I've been able to cultivate a community of like-minded artists, mentors, and friends after moving to Atlanta post-college. My job at Burnaway, a nonprofit magazine of art and criticism has strengthened my connections with the art scene and allowed me to grow as a critic as well. I most enjoy seeing art in DIY spaces like the in-project space near East Point as well as smaller commercial spaces like Take It Easy on Edgewood. I also enjoy the programming at Swan Coach House Gallery, as well as the yearly Working Artist Project exhibitions at MoCA GA. My work can be seen online via my website, emilyyamasalas.com. Multimedia
1: artist Emily Yamasalas and our series Speaking of Art. More information about Yamazales and her work is on our website, wabe.org speaking of. Young Artists with the Alliance Theater's Palevsky Collision Project will illustrate the impact of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy in two performances on Monday— at 11 a.m. at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and at 3 p.m. in the rich auditorium of the Woodruff Arts Center. The Collision Project assembles a diverse group of teenagers for three weeks each summer to produce a new theater piece based on a source text under the guidance of a professional playwright and director. The theater piece is then repurposed during the next year's MLK holiday weekend. During the summer of 2022, the teens were inspired by the poetry collection Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings by Native American poet, Joy Harjo. From that inspiration, students created the performance Everybody has a heartache, what we don't know. And during this year's MLK weekend for 2023, the young artists reimagined their last summer performance through the lens of letters to Dr. King. The performance is directed by Patrick McCullery. In collaboration with playwright and poet Pearl Clegg. Here she shares with us the process that went into the letters to Dr. King.
4: I always ask them as one of our writing prompts to write a letter to Dr. King to tell him about themselves but to also talk to him about our world right now. And I'm always inspired by their faith, their optimism, their hope. And that is part of what we're always trying to pass on on King Day, the hope and optimism of the next generation of young people. I consider it to be a real responsibility for me to introduce many of our young people to the deeper ideas that Dr. King was exploring because I did get to meet Dr. King. I did get to be a part of demonstrations um, where we were determined to change our country. I think having an opportunity to share with them some of my personal experiences and to hear from them some of their experiences as people who have marched and demonstrated about issues that are moving that generation today. It's such a wonderful opportunity for cross-generational exchange. Admission for the performances is
1: free, but reservations are required. For more information about the Pilevsky Collision Project, visit AllianceTheater.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at nine. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain tells us about her new documentary film, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, part of the PBS series American Experience. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelly Knavey. I'm your host, Lois Wrights Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.
6: Get ready for My Money Mentors, the new WABE-TV financial literacy series hosted by Jacqueline Shadek and Chris Corinthian and produced with support from Delta Community Credit Union. To learn more, visit wabe.org slash mymoneymentors.
5: I'm Max Hines, executive chef at Breaker Breaker and host of Just Set, a podcast featuring the folks moving Atlanta's culinary scene forward. I've worked in restaurants for most of my life and heard countless stories from the people who make your dining experiences possible, some inspiring, some heartbreaking, all of them important. Listen as Atlanta chefs, mixologists, farmers, and more talk about opening restaurants, concocting the perfect drink, or supplying local produce, all while shining a light on challenges in the industry. W-A-B-E dot org slash Just Set or your favorite podcast platform.